Hi everyone, welcome to the Spring Cara podcast. I'm Lisa, and I promised you last week that I would explain exactly how and why our bones get weaker as we age. And as we saw from the stats on falls and fractures of the hip in particular, you now appreciate how our bone density can have a huge impact on our health and our survival. It helps to know what bone itself is made of. It's basically a matrix of collagen, calcium, phosphate, other minerals with bone cells embedded within that matrix. And there are actually several different types of bone cells, but I want to focus on two very important ones in particular. We have bone building cells that create bone, but there are also bone destroying cells that break bone down. And you might think, why on earth would we want to break our bone down? But it's actually very important because these cells are removing the old, worn out bone so that overall the bone strength is better. I mentioned that bone is living tissue and just like all the other or most of the other cells in your body, they all have a limited lifespan and they get replaced. And the particular lifespan varies quite a lot depending on the type of cell. So some skin cells, for example, they might only last a few days before they're replaced. Red blood cells are replaced every four months or so. And by the way, guess where those red blood cells are produced? They are produced within your bones. In the middle of some of the larger bones in your body is the bone marrow. And when it comes to red blood cells, your bone marrow can produce a staggering 2 million red blood cells every second. (laughs) Our bodies really are incredible. So that's another very important job of your bones, obviously, to produce blood cells. But bone cells themselves can last several years, and actually your whole skeleton is effectively replaced about every 10 years. So with the bone building and the bone destroying cells, there's a a bit of a seesaw balancing act between them in terms of their levels of activity, and, and that balance changes as time goes on. So initially in life, the activity of the bone builders greatly outweighs the activity of the bone destroyers. And obviously the effect of that is that you grow, the bones grow bigger and longer. And that's basically your growth in your early years. But even after your bones stop growing in length, so say after you've finished puberty and you are your full adult height, the shift of balance is still in favour of the bone building cells. That's maintained so that instead of growing longer, Now your bones just become denser and stronger as more bone is laid down. And that bone density keeps on increasing until about your early to mid-twenties. And this is when the seesaw starts to balance out a bit. So there's very little change in terms of your bone density from about your mid-twenties to about your mid-thirties. And the seesaw is balanced, so the bone builders are producing bone as quickly as the bone destroyers are taking it away. And this represents the time in your life that your bone density is pretty much at its peak. Because unfortunately, from 35, the balance starts to shift in the other direction. And the activity of the bone destroyers starts to creep up and outweigh the activities of the bone builders. Now in women, especially around the menopause, average age around 50, this accelerates even more, partly due to the reduction in estrogen, which affects all of the bone cells, as well as affecting how well calcium is absorbed in your gut. But in general, we can lose approximately 1% of our bone density per year. And if enough bone density is lost and your bone density goes below a certain threshold, that's when you might be diagnosed with osteoporosis, porous bones, or the precursor to osteoporosis, which is called osteopenia, which literally means thinning bones. I mentioned the stats on hip fractures last time, 
And with osteoporosis, any bone can fracture more easily, obviously, because the overall, their overall they are weaker. But actually, the most common fracture to have with osteoporosis is in the spine, where a spinal vertebra can have what's called a compression fracture, where it kind of collapses in on itself a little bit. Now, you might think, well, okay, this is life. This is how it works. This is what happens with our bone density. It, there, there can't be anything that I can do about it. But actually, there is. There is a few things that you can do about it. Uh, personally, first of all, I think there's an argument to be made that it's useful to get your bone density checked when you're in your mid-30s or so. This is something that I did. And it's not something the NHS would do. They tend to only want to check your bone density when you're already well into your 70s, if not later, to see what it's like at that point. But I think it's useful to know your starting point before your bone density starts to reduce. And, and that's also when you can really still do quite a lot about it. Especially if you know your baseline levels aren't great to start with, it gives you a bit more motivation. Now, once someone is diagnosed with osteoporosis, in terms of treatment, there's not an awful lot that can be done, but they will often be prescribed medications called bisphosphonates, of which one of the most common is called alindronic acid. And the way that these medications work is by slowing down the activity of those bone destroyer cells. So in order to try and maintain the bone density as much as possible. This is a slightly controversial area, though, and a lot of research is still going on here because it's thought that the result is not very good quality bone. Do we really want the old, worn out, more brittle bone hanging around for longer anyway? And uh, that's debatable, which is probably why you can still fracture a bone when you're on these drugs and why doctors do not usually recommend that people stay on them for longer than about five years. But remember what I said about bone being living, acting active tissue again. This means it responds to outside forces. And this gives us one of the most important ways we can influence our own bone density. And, and therefore, you might say your bone destiny. And that's weight-bearing exercise. Our bones respond to the demands placed on them. My patients have all heard my refrain many times, use it or lose it. So if you were doing anything regularly that involves weight bearing, in other words, being upright against gravity, because every time you even just take a step to walk, there's an impact with the ground that your body needs to be strong enough to withstand. So with lots of weight bearing activity, your body effectively says, okay, well, we need to make sure there's enough strength in these bones. And this can be anything from walking to running to dancing to Zumba aerobics, anything like that is weight bearing activity. And this type of activity actually stimulates the bone building cells. And we can see the importance and the effect of weight bearing by looking at the opposite scenario in astronauts. With no gravity and no weight bearing at all, they can actually lose 1.6% of their bone density per month. And by the way, lying down has similar effects as no gravity. So you can understand why someone who's laid up in bed for weeks or months will have increasingly weak bones, and it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle. This is why you always hear about weight-bearing exercise. But there's another thing that has a huge impact on your bone density and which you have a lot of control over, and that's your vitamin D levels. Because it's the presence of vitamin D that is vital for calcium and phosphate to be absorbed in your gut from the food that you eat. Remember those bone-building cells I've been speaking about? Well, they use calcium and phosphate in particular to build bone. These are literally the bricks and mortar of your bones, if you like. Also your teeth. But if your vitamin D levels are too low, then you actually physically cannot absorb enough calcium in your gut. However much calcium you might be eating in your food, or even if you're taking extra calcium supplements, 
these are absolutely useless if there's not enough vitamin D for it to be absorbed into your body in the first place. And there's a problem here because calcium, as well as being a big part of your bones, is also vitally important for your muscles and your nerves to work properly as well. And that includes your heart, which is muscle, and your brain and spinal cord, which are our nerves, obviously. And between them, they all take absolute priority for your immediate and your short-term survival over your long-term survival or your long-term bone density. So low vitamin D levels means less calcium gets absorbed in your gut. Therefore, in order to keep the heart and brain going, your body has to resort to taking calcium back out of your bones. And it does this by ramping up the activity of the bone destroyers. They then break down the bone and extract the calcium for it to be sent to where it's more urgently needed. So a deficiency of vitamin D, especially if it's over a long period, causes your bones to weaken and effectively contributes to osteoporosis in later life. And vitamin D deficiency will also affect what you get to for your peak bone density levels. So at 35, you might already have slightly compromised bone density because your vitamin D levels haven't been kept up to a suitable level. Even in children, a vitamin D deficiency can cause problems. There's a condition called, called rickets, which often results in deformities and soft bones that haven't formed properly because they haven't had the right building blocks. And that is a result of a severe vitamin D deficiency. There's an adult form of rickets called osteomalacia. Both of these conditions can be very painful. But even without rickets or osteomalacia as a definitive diagnosed disease, people with a vitamin D deficiency can have pain in their bones, their joints, their muscles, whether in an adult or, in a, or children. Sometimes we think this is what is linked to what we call growing pains in children. And it was thought for a long time that vitamin D's only role was in what I've just described, in bone health and calcium levels and so on. But we now know that vitamin D has a much wider influence than just the bones. It's actually really difficult to overstate its importance to your health overall, because it's needed for heart health and brain function, obviously, from what I've said. But a vitamin D deficiency can also cause mood problems. It's linked with depression, fatigue, sleep disorders, and it's even been linked with some cancers. We think the latter possibly because it's also extremely important for your immune system to work properly. Your immune system obviously is responsible for helping you to fight off bugs and heal from damage or disease and so on. And actually, there's quite a bit of research now showing that those people who did worst with COVID in terms of being hospitalized or sadly dying had the lowest vitamin D levels compared to those who didn't suffer so badly. So vitamin D, absolutely essential for immune system function. So what exactly is vitamin D? Where do we get it from? How can we make sure that our levels are good enough for our bones and our heart and our nervous system and our immune system and everything else? And first of all, vitamin D, unfortunately, is not named particularly well because it's actually, in fact, a hormone. And a hormone is a chemical that runs around your body, primarily through your bloodstream, and it acts as a messenger to tell different parts of your body or different cells to do something. And you might think straight away when I say hormones, you might think primarily of the reproductive or sex hormones like estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. But in fact, there are many more different types of hormones that control all sorts of things in your body, not just those sex hormones. I talked before about how your brain and your body communicate via the spinal cord and hormones in the bloodstream represent another major way that your body communicates with itself. And vitamin D is a very important hormone within that system. 
But a vitamin is usually defined as an essential nutrient that's needed by your body, i.e. from your diet. And there is actually some vitamin D ready-made, so to speak, in some foods, mostly oily fish, eggs, some meat. But it's very, very difficult, if not nigh on impossible, to get anywhere near what your body needs from your diet alone. You can really only get about 10% of what you need this way. But the great news is that just like all your other hormones, your body can actually make its own vitamin D. Great, job done. Why am I even talking about it? Why would anyone ever be deficient if they can just make their own anyway? And the reason is that in order to make your own vitamin D, your body needs two things. It needs the building block or starting point for making the, the vitamin D hormone. And that starting point is something called 7-dehydrocholesterol. Now, I don't normally use the long chemical names, but I thought you might be interested in that one because this is actually a byproduct of the process by which your body makes its own cholesterol. Might surprise you to know about 75% of the cholesterol in your body is actually made by your body. And this byproduct of that reaction is then used as the building block to make your vitamin D. And there is loads of this stuff in your skin because the other thing your body needs to convert that building block through the chemical pathways in your body to make the vitamin D itself is sunlight. And sunlight has to hit your bare skin to then create this chemical reaction that goes through various stages before it becomes the active hormone. Now, the problem is that in order for your skin to be able to make the vitamin D, the sun has to be at a certain strength. In other words, the sun rays have to be at a certain intensity and they have to be hitting your skin at a certain angle. And unfortunately for us here in the UK, your body can only make its own vitamin D between about April and September. And even then, only between about 11 a.m. and 3 p.m.-ish. The rule of thumb generally to know whether your body is able to make your own vitamin D between those times, between April and September, is if your shadow is shorter than your body, which in other words usually means the sun is higher in the sky. So if you go outside on the most glorious sunshiny day in July, maybe around 4.30 p.m., the sun is much lower in the sky, so your shadow will be longer than your height, and that means your body cannot make vitamin D. But even if you went out on the most glorious sunshiny day in July at midday, it's very possible you wouldn't make much vitamin D even then, because the sun's rays have to hit your bare skin. So both clothing and suntan lotion will block out the sun's rays and stop you making vitamin D. And of course, we don't, we don't always have the most glorious sunshiny days, even in July. I won't mention this year. And cloud cover also blocks the sun's intensity. And in the most glorious sunshiny day in October, when we do get them, you could be outside semi-naked all day long and you're still not able to make enough vitamin D for yourself because it's the wrong time of year. This is why research has shown that around 60% of us, I've, some, I've seen some studies that have shown up to 75% of us in the UK, are vitamin D deficient even in the summertime. And in the wintertime, it's even higher. Pretty much all of us, around 90% of us are deficient through the winter. Now, I am not telling you to go out and burn yourself to a crisp in the midday, midday sun in July, because obviously there are other considerations that involve skin damage with too much sun exposure. So if you know you're going to be outside all day on a hot summer's day, then absolutely you should be put, putting suntan lotion on. But if you just want to make sure that you're getting your vitamin D for the day, most of our bodies can make enough with about 10 to 30 minutes of sun exposure at the right time of your day and the right time of year in the UK, 
with as much skin exposed as possible. But you don't want to be there long enough to burn, obviously, or even go too pink because we don't want the sun damage and the added risks that that holds. Now, I say 10 to 30 minutes, which is a pretty broad range, and you might not think it's very helpful. But unfortunately, there's not an absolute one number fits all I can give you. I can't tell you that you should spend exactly X many minutes in the sun because, again, as well as depending on the time of day and time of year, it also depends on the individual because we all have different skin tones and this plays a big role as well. The darker the skin, the more melanin there is in it, which is the skin pigment that's there specifically to protect the skin against sun damage. This is why everyone goes darker on a two-week beach holiday in the Caribbean. Your body reacts to the sun exposure by producing more melanin to protect you. But unfortunately, that also hinders the vitamin D production as well. I mentioned that those with the lowest vitamin D levels did worse with COVID because of the link to how well our immune systems function. And you might remember some even more specific headlines during the pandemic when the research showed very clearly that one of the even more vulnerable groups who did worst with COVID were the BAME groups, the Black, Asian and ethnic minorities. Well, we think this is to do with their vitamin D levels because this group tends to have the darkest skin tones and have a known tendency to vitamin D deficiency because, as I said, the melanin in the skin blocks the production of vitamin D. Another vulnerable group identified in the research was the elderly, and they also tend to have lower vitamin D levels, firstly because their bodies can become less efficient at making it. We think they have lower levels of the building block in their skin to start with, but also on the whole, they don't tend to spend as much time outside as younger people. There's a proposal in the functional medicine world, in fact, that perhaps the reason we might be more likely to succumb to the cold, the flu, the COVID bugs in the wintertime is because of our lower vitamin D levels then, because we are exposed to all of these bugs all the time. There may be a link to SAD as well, seasonal affective disorder. We know that low vitamin D levels are linked to depression. That's probably not the whole story as far as SAD is concerned, because that also seems to be very much linked to changes in our circadian rhythms, our sleep-wake cycles, and productions of certain chemicals in the brain during winter. But when it comes to vitamin D deficiency, what exactly am I talking about? How do we measure it? How do we define that? And measurement is usually done by a blood test, which measures the amount of the inactive form of vitamin D in your blood. This then normally gets converted to the active form in your kidneys. And you can get a vitamin D blood test done easily by your GP. You can even get a home finger prick test type of thing online, or you can get one in clinic next time you're in if you're interested. There's a little bit of um, disagreement, though, perhaps about what your levels should be and where exactly we would define deficiency. If your GP does a test, or in fact, if you get anyone done independently by any of the labs, they're generally looking for your levels to be above 50. I think the unit's nanomoles per litre. But anything under 50, they would define as deficient. But anything that's 50 and above, they say your vitamin D levels are absolutely fine. However, in functional medicine, which is what I'm talking about here, we're not just looking for the absolute minimum value that stops you getting rickets or osteomalacia, for example. We're looking for optimal levels, for optimal health. In other words, at what level of vitamin D does your body, your immune system and so on function at its best? And it turns out the optimal level is more like 100, even up to 150. So in functional medicine terms, we would still deem, deem 50 as insufficient. 
you can still experience symptoms such as pain, fatigue and depression around the 75 mark as well, for example. I always say it's the difference between having enough just to survive compared to having enough to thrive. So if you can't get enough from your diet, we've now very much in the UK now come into the time of year when we can't make our own anyway, how can your body get enough vitamin D? And really the only other source of vitamin D is from supplements. Government advice, in fact, is that everyone should take a vitamin D supplement during the winter at least. I would argue that depending on your circumstances, it might even be necessary to do it during the summer too, uh, especially after the one we've just had. But not all supplements are created equal. Personally, I want any supplements I take to give me a meaningful dose of whatever it is. It's in a form that my body can most readily absorb without any other unnecessary stuff, which is why I'm very specific about the supplements that we have available in the clinic. The ones we have available usually provide a level of vitamin D that's quite a bit higher than you would see in any other vitamin D supplement available on the high street, which they, these will rarely have anything above the official RDA, the recommended daily allowance, which is 800 IU. The most I've seen was 1000 IU. And the RDA were originally calculated, again, to show the absolute bare minimum you need to survive, but not necessarily to thrive. To put it into perspective, your body, under the right circumstances that I've described, will make around 20,000 IU in half an hour. So the recommendation from a functional medicine point of view is quite a bit higher. Now, I can't give you a specific individual recommendation because it does depend on things like body size. For example, children have lower recommendations because of smaller body size. In very overweight individuals, there is an added complication because vitamin D is a what's known as a fat-soluble hormone which means it gets stored in fat cells. So if you have a lot of those, the vitamin D gets locked away effectively and becomes unavailable to the rest of your body. Uh, of course, in pregnant women, breastfeeding women, the dosage might differ as well. By the way, vitamin D deficiency in pregnancy is linked with an increased risk of miscarriage, preeclampsia and cesarean section. Uh, a good vitamin D supplement that is of a decent dosage should also have vitamin K2 with it. This is very important because, as I've mentioned before, vitamin D is involved in the absorption of calcium in the gut, which is why you don't necessarily need to take a calcium supplement as well, by the way. But you do want all that extra calcium you're absorbing to go to the right places like your bones. You don't want it to go to places that it shouldn't, like your kidneys, where it could make kidney stones and so on. And a big part of vitamin K2's job is to usher the calcium into the bones, which is where we want it. Now, there are some people who shouldn't take a vitamin D supplement at all. It includes anyone with a condition called sarcoidosis and anyone who has certain blood clotting disorders or is taking warfarin, which is a blood thinner for blood clotting problems. These people shouldn't take the vitamin K portion of the supplement in particular because that's also involved in blood clotting. Now there's also magnesium. You could be taking loads of vitamin D, but if you don't have enough magnesium, then your body won't be able to make use of the vitamin D properly. You can get vitamin D toxicity as well. So if you're not sure about how much vitamin D you should be taking or which are the best supplements that we would recommend, then please do speak to us the next time you're in clinic. If you happen to be listening and you're not a spring chiropractor patient, then I would advise speaking to a functional medicine doctor or a naturopath for advice. I hope that has enlightened you a little bit as to our bone density and what you can do proactively to maintain your bone density and along the way improve your immune system function, which is never a bad thing. That's all for today. I am wishing you the best health and happiness. Take care.